It's a joy to be with all of you this morning. If you're new with us, I'd like to add my welcome to the one that already went out. I want to tell you, my name is Charles. I'm one of the pastors. I would love to meet you. So if we haven't met, please come up, say hi. I'd love to make your acquaintance. Uh, we're right in the middle of a series on the book of Jonah. And uh, boy, that's been fun the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're nearing the midway point of the book. And, and every time I look at Jonah, I always, I'm always struck by just how much activity is packed into just a few pages. Um, the last time we looked at him last week, uh, we left him after having been thrown overboard in the middle of a storm. He said to the pagan sailors, he said, I know that it is because of me that the storm has come upon you, and so throw me overboard. And even after he said that, he, uh, they tried not to. They, the passage says he, they rode against the storm even harder, but eventually, reluctantly, uh, they threw him overboard. And that's where we left off with uh, the sailors moving on on now calm seas. And Jonah left to fend for himself in the middle of the ocean. And what we'll see here in this passage is that God is not done with Jonah yet. That despite doing everything he could to rupture his relationship with God, God still pursues him. And I think what we'll see as we look at this passage is the miracle of a heart that is softening toward God. This is the prayer of Jonah from the belly of a fish. Let's look together. This is Jonah chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord as God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are gathered before you now. These are your words given to your people. So I pray you would help us to hear them, uh, to learn, to be edified, to be comforted. I pray that you would give us your presence as we look at these things, and that you would help me, your servant, to love these friends well. As I speak, help me to speak with the compassion 
that you call us to, that you give us in this passage. Help us all to have a feeling sense of your love for us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's imagine that this is a case study of Jonah, of the person of Jonah. Uh, what, what thoughts might you have now that we're about halfway through the book of who this man is? I tend to think that when we look at this, look at up, up until now, I think it's kind of hard not to see him with some pity. Like it, the call that God gives Jonah to go to Nineveh had to at least feel strange and counterintuitive in the most mildest sense. Uh, possibly very costly and dangerous. Uh, Ninevites were sworn enemies of God's people, and they were known for their brutality. And so you can imagine Jonah with, with a sense of, possibly a sense of despair, a sense of great fear. You can imagine him even asking the question, uh, why, why in the world are you sending me? Like of all the people that you could send to this place, why are you sending me? And, and why are you sending a prophet? Uh, why are you sending the army of the Lord? Why are you sending a prophet of the Lord to this place? You can just imagine the internal arguments that Jonah might be having. And, and it's hard not to at least kind of understand all of these feelings. Many of these questions are questions we ask all the time. I mean, we know what despair feels like. We know what pity feels like. We, we know what reluctance toward God feels like. And I think one of the things we're also seeing in this story that this story wants us to see is what it looks like when a heart has hardened itself against God. Because these physical actions, things that have happened to, uh, to Jonah, are actually physical manifestations of what is a spiritual reality. Because when Jonah heard from the Lord and ran, it wasn't just the cost of the work that God was calling him to. He was running from his relationship to God himself. It, it said, the passage says over and over and over again that he was... He was not just fleeing his call, he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. And so this is all very, very personal, not just for Jonah, but for God. And I think the question we're left to ask here is, what does God do with a hardened heart? Now, I know that we have asked that question before. Either when we're thinking about our own hardness of heart, our own hardness of heart toward God or toward others, or when we're thinking about people around us that we love and we see their hardness of heart. What does God do with a hard heart? I think what we're looking at in this prayer is a miracle. A miracle that God works out as we see a hard heart getting softer. How does it happen? Well, he sends a fish. He sends a fish, and you know what's great about being in the belly of a fish for three days is that it gives you time to think. And so, and so that's where we find Jonah. He is, this, this prayer is a prayer that he prays in the darkness from the belly of a fish. And what do we see in this prayer? Well, I want to just name three things. Predictably, I'm going to name three things, okay? Uh, he remembers his distress. Uh, he celebrates his rescue. And finally, he's reinvigorated in devotion. He remembers his distress, he celebrates his rescue, and he's reinvigorated in devotion. Okay, first, 
remembering his distress, it's, it's, it's really graphic, isn't it? When you look at this poem, uh, this prayer, the first thing I really want you to see is just how vivid his description of his distress is. It gives it high graphic detail. Verse 3, I'm in the deep. I'm in the heart of the sea. I'm at the roots of the mountains. That would be a reference to where the mountain bases extend underwater. So he's saying he's at the very, very bottom. This would be the floor of the sea. He remembers seaweed or kelp wrapped around his head. And what's interesting about all of this to me is that all of the graphic detail is, is focused on just where Jonah is when he's in the water and sinking. When we think of the story of Jonah, usually the thing we're fascinated by is a fish swallowing Jonah and a fish spitting Jonah out. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Actually, what is going on? When you look at that, that first verse in the text, verse 10, and, uh, or verse 17, and the last verse in the text in verse 10, it, it is narratival and it is just... It is unembellished, unceremonious, this is what happened. The text is actually trying to draw you into just the desperate state that Jonah is in. That's what it's calling us to appreciate. That, that, that without any kind of help, Jonah is, is, uh, is, is lost without uh, any kind of intervention from God. If he's left to fend for himself, he's truly lost. The, the depth of distress that he describes is profound in this prayer. He remembers it, and he names it. He calls it for what it is. And not only that, he also describes the source of his distress. Did you catch that when we read it? He says, you, you cast me into the deep. He said, all your waves and your billows passed over me. And Jonah is recognizing that everything he is suffering, at its root, the source of it is, is the great rupture that he has created in his relationship to God. This is all very personal. These are those physical manifestations of a spiritual reality. And perhaps, and this is what's most impressive to me, is perhaps maybe as impressive as what we see is what we don't see in this passage. There is no, he offers no reasoning, excuses, rationalizations, and you know he had some, right? Like it, it, it wasn't hard for us to imagine a few that he might have. You know he probably had a catalog of reasons for why he did what he did, but, but you don't see any of that here. Nowhere does he even offer an explanation for what he did. So the point that I'm trying to get to is as he remembers his distress, he is exceedingly honest about it. Like a humble man prays this prayer, an honest one, which is one of the reasons this is so striking to us, because it's refreshingly admirable. This is one of the few places in the book of Jonah where we're actually going to be able to admire Jonah, and we should admire it, I think. There's dignity in that. It kind of reminds me of what... uh, some of you might remember this story, the story of Marion Jones, a, a sprinter for the U.S. national team who went to the Olympics. It was, uh, she went in, 
the year 2000 when the Olympics were in Sydney. She became a national sensation overnight. She came home with five gold medals. She was wicked fast. Uh, and shortly after she came back, um, she it, it, it broke on the news that she was under investigation for using performance-enhancing drugs. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, like we know how that goes, right? You know, somebody gets quiet or arguments come out or rationalizations or everybody's doing it. But what Marion Jones did was amazing and it was refreshingly admirable. She just stood up and she said, I lost everything. I lost millions of dollars in endorsement deals. They stripped away my medals. And you know what? I did it. I did everything they said I did. I deserved what I got. There was such, if you were watching, there was such dignity in what she did. It was the honesty with which she remembered her distress and, and, uh, and, and the ways that she named her own complicity. And, and the, the, the thing that I want to lay before you here, propose before you here, is that I think this is where the thawing of a cold heart begins. Is with, just with honesty about who we are and the ways that we have contributed to our distress. Now, I really want to be careful about that. Because sometimes we suffer for things we didn't do. Sometimes we suffer for things that somebody else did. Or the, or the, the hard uh, navigation of living in a fallen world. But, it, but, but we all know what it's like to also suffer distress and contribute to our own distress. And that, that, can be, that, that can be really hard for us to just admit out loud. It's much easier for us to, to, to offer a catalog of ways that kind of simply let ourselves off the hook. But the benefits of honesty are, are, are simply tremendous. And I just want to name two. One is that there's great freedom in humility. There's, and, and Jesus' grace, like we just confessed our sins together with one voice. Like there should be no need for pretense amongst God's people. Like we, it is only by grace that we go forward. And his grace feel, frees us to simply be honest about who we are. And a humble heart is a heart that needs Jesus. And that, that, that's really the tragedy, I think, of a cold heart, is that a life with that humility is a life that doesn't need Jesus. That's the tragedy. It's one that looks at God and says, I don't need you. A soft heart says, where would I be without you? A hard heart says, you need me a lot more than I need you. A soft heart says, I'm lost without you. That's an honest confession. As we remember our distress, it leads us to acknowledge our need and it also brings us to a place where we can honestly and robustly celebrate our rescue. And that's where Jonah's prayer moves. It moves into this celebration of the ways that he is rescued. It began with saying, I'm lost. I was, I was uh, in despair. I was like, I couldn't help myself. And so I'm so grateful for the rescue that you offer. And how does he celebrate his rescue? First, he celebrates that God hears. Boy, we need to look at this. It says God hears his prayers. Now remember, where is Jonah? 
Jonah is at the bottom of the sea. He's, at, he's in the depths. He even can see the, the bars of Sheol is the way that passage is. That, that reference to bars describes the bars that would cross the, the heavy gates of a big city. He, he's about to cross into Sheol from which there is no return. That's the impression that he gets. So, so he, he is there. And where is God at this point in the prayer? If you look at it's verse 7, it says, My prayer came into your holy temple. And so the, 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 the prayer is, is declaring that Jonah is as far as possible, uh, is as far away from God as possible. And yet, he, and yet his prayers still reach God's ears. That's the point that's being made, is that there's nowhere Jonah can go where his prayers wouldn't be heard. And we need to hear that, don't we? Like the Bible is replete with this idea that God hears his people's cry. The Psalms are full of statements like this. From out of the depths my cry rose to you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. One of my favorites is in Exodus chapter 3 where God's people are in a desperate, desperate place. They are enslaved in Egypt They are beyond any ability to help themselves. And it says their cry rose to God. And it just says this, and God heard. God hears the cries of his people. He hears your prayers. But listen, that's not enough, is it? It's not enough. It's not, a, it's not the robust comfort we need it to be when we remember our distress, just simply that, to know that God hears. We also have to know that God responds to our prayers, that our prayers move him in some way, that he, that he cares. And so what we see is that just as God hears Jonah's prayers, we also see that God rescues Jonah. That God isn't just a, a hearing God, God is a rescuing God. Look at verse 1. I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. You brought my life up from the pit. Now listen, when you think of a rescue, like, do you really think of a fish? Uh, the more I think about it, it's the fish that makes the most sense to me. I know it might seem weird to you, but given where Jonah is and, and what he needs at that moment, a fish coming to, to save Jonah makes sense. But the point of the story is the providential care of God. That just like where there, there's nowhere Jonah can go where his prayers won't be heard, there's nowhere Jonah can go where he is void of the possibility of God's rescuing action on his behalf. That verse says that the Lord appointed, appointed a fish. That, that word could also be translated provided. God provided a fish. And when you put all this together, I think what you see is the, the wonder of a compassionate God. A God who is full of compassion. The story of Jonah is not a case study of the person of Jonah. The story of Jonah is at its core a case study of the robust, full, unflinching compassion of God. That's what we see in this passage. His compassion for a city full of people who have lost their way. And and his compassion for a rebellious prophet 
who has lost his way. And that's what's fascinating about this whole story is that if anybody should have known better, it would have been Jonah, right? Like what, if Jonah showed you his business card, what's it going to say? It's going to say, Jonah, prophet of the most high God. If anybody knew that God is a compassionate God, it should have been Jonah. I mean, he grew up steeped in the scriptures. He knew all the stories of God's steadfast love given to his people across generations. He probably witnessed with his own eyes some of God's acts of compassion for his own people. And when you look at this prayer, what does it feel like when you look at it? Well, it looks like something that could have been lifted right out of the psalm book, right? I mean, it, it belongs. It almost feels like it belongs. Well, it, it's not, but it's more a patchwork of different, different lines and prayers pulled out of the... You can trace a lot of these phrases to different psalms. We put one in the worship bulletin. Psalm 30 feels very similar to this. Uh, verse 7 is a, in the Hebrew, is a direct word-for-word word quote of a, of a verse from Psalm 42. And so what you're seeing here is, is this is the... And I, oh, and I don't think that Jonah had his Hebrew scriptures with him in the belly of this fish. Like, I don't think there was any light, and I don't think he had any paper, okay? What you're seeing here is the, the heart of a man who has prayed the prayers, who has prayed the Psalms, expressing itself in this way. It's a prayer that sings from the heart of someone who has prayed the Psalms before. Jonah always knew who God was. But what's changed? What's changing is his heart. What we're seeing is that Jonah's heart is changed. That that he has become so exceedingly grateful for his own rescue. And listen, that's what gratitude does. That's what the virtue of gratitude does. It changes how you see everything. Uh, uh, it, it, uh, it tempers our lows. It helps us appreciate our highs. It helps us appreciate things that, that we might not have been able to appreciate. G.K. Chesterton calls the practice of gratitude one of the highest of Christian duties. It's a Christian virtue. And then he says this, and it is also nearly the most difficult. Boy, that's right, isn't it? Like for as wonderful, like we, we would all love to be more grateful people, but for as wonderful as it is, it's often very hard. And, it, and, it, and I think it would be easy to beat ourselves up or beat each other up and just call, us to be, call each other to be more grateful people. I have a friend. She's a wonderful friend. Um, and, and, and we were talking about this. This was like a couple months ago. We were talking about this, uh, the, the, the importance of gratitude in our lives and how we navigate diff- seasons of real difficulty. And uh, you know what she did? She pulled a rock out of her pocket and I was a little surprised because um, it was actually a pretty big rock. I mean, it was like, I was like, she pulled it out. I was like, where, is, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? And it just said, be thankful. And, and, and if that's all we have, a reminder to be thankful or an encouragement to be more, to be more thankful, 
I think that's really actually a hard call. But what God calls us to do is to root what, what we see is what we see Jonah doing and what God gives us through Jesus Christ is a constant cause for thanksgiving. That just as Jonah remembers his rescue and is and is and is thankful for it, that that we have this constant cause for thankfulness as we remember our rescue in Jesus Christ. Like the compassion of Christ, the compassion of the cross is what reminds us that we always have this constant cause for thankfulness because he's the rescuer. Like we were the ones who were lost with no ability to help ourselves. That when we're honest about ourselves, that is who we are, lost in our sin and and completely dependent on the saving work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he's the one who doesn't just know our distress, but he incarnated into our distress. Like he doesn't just know it, he experienced it. And now we have this great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, but one who knows, knows, instinctively understands the experience of our suffering. And, and is so burdened for you and burdened for me that he doesn't just look at it. What he did, he entered into it and he gave himself for us in his sacrifice on the cross. And then he gives us a promise. The, the promise of hope. The promise that there's going to come a time when the darkness ends. And the world, is not always, the world will not be always as it is. And we become children of hope. And he stamps this promise with the blood of Jesus Christ and he seals it to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so what he does is he works our cause for gratefulness into our very hearts. And then he tells us to go forward and bring this promise of hope to the world around us. Like that, fundamentally, that is who we are, is we are children of hope because we're children of God through Jesus Christ. And then the, one of the best things we off, have to offer the world is that we have to offer hope. That darkness ends and light persists in Jesus Christ. And our mission from the day that we first belong to Jesus until the day we're with them face to face is to bring this promise of light into the world. And there are going to be times, there are going to be times when this, this call inclines against our strongest instincts. Just like Jonah, our devotion might be tested. We can celebrate our rescue. We can remember our distress, celebrate our rescue, be completely thankful. And yet, God, what are you asking me to do? Well, look where Jonah's newfound humility and thankfulness take him. It might be a bit of uh, homiletic hyperbole to talk about reinvigorated in devotion, but I think you at least see a little bit of that in this passage. By the end of the prayer, he at least seems willing to go where he previously wasn't. Verse 8, he makes this declaration, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Uh, Now, he's saying a lot in that passage. But at the core of this is a confession that his only hope of receiving steadfast love is rooted in one that's found 
in a relationship to God. He is he was fleeing from God. Now he desires to be near God. You see that the relationship between Jonah and God is repairing. Uh, and in verse 9, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his to give. It's ours to receive. I didn't earn it, but he gives it to me graciously. And now he's vowing vows and making promises. This is, this is a really interesting piece of the literary wonder of Jonah because the last time we saw uh, someone doing this in Jonah, it was the pagan sailors on the ship, like outperforming Jonah in the practice of faith. But now, now we see Jonah vowing vows and making promises, uh, committing himself to offering sacrifices now. It seems like his devotion is at least a little bit reinvigorated. Like he is now willing to move in the direction that God calls him to. And there's always been some debate. Matt and I were talking about this uh, earlier this week. There, there's always been real debate about whether this is true repentance. Like, is this a, is this, is this a repentance from Jonah or is it not? And, and, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I can see reasons uh, for and against that. But I think when we go forward, um, and this is a comfort to us, is that one of the things we'll see is that even, even after this, God still has much to teach Jonah. Like Jonah, there's not a point in the story of Jonah where we really get the feeling like Jonah's arrived and truly understands. But I think that what we see here is that this is what it looks like when you see a hard heart beginning to soften. And if I could define that for you, my best stab at it is that a tender heart before God is one that grows to love what God loves. If, if the definition of sin, if a definition of sin is like the rejection of God's will for us and the adoption of our own will, that might be hardness of heart. A tender heart before the Lord is one that is growing to love what God loves. One that is honest before him, that loves to be with him, that is seasoned with grace. And is growing to love what God loves. And at least for now, I think that's where we find Jonah at the end of this prayer. And I do think there is some comfort to be found if you pan back a little bit and look at this story. Because it begins with him making some disastrous decisions, right? That affect him, that affect everyone around him. But here we see him offering this beautiful prayer from the dark. All of his prayers are in the dark. He offers a prayer from the bottom of the sea. He offers a prayer from the belly of the fish. And we're not done yet. This is an adventure, a roller coaster ride of experience and emotions. But if this is a case study for anything, it's a demonstration for us that even when God, Jonah's heart wavers, God's heart toward him never does. Listen, God is better. God is better at grace and forgiveness than you are at sinning. And I want you to hear that. Because when your heart wavers, when your devotion is tested, as happens to all of us, remember Jesus, the one who said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will never cast them out. That he is the true light in the darkness. His life is the light of men. And the darkness will not prevail against it. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray.
Our Heavenly Father, O Lord Jesus, our light and our life. This life is the light of men, and you are our life. And so I pray that you would be with us now, that you would help us to love, to discern, to follow. Give us a growing sense of the goodness that we receive from you. Help us. I pray that you would help us in the remainder of worship as we uh, hear more from you as you speak to us from your table. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.